How's everybody doing? Good? <laughs> Good. Hey, thank you guys so much for being here. And um, if you're watching online, thank you for, uh, for watching online. I was, at, uh, I was at a coffee shop the other day, and um, uh, a really nice lady who, she doesn't come to our church, but she's always just been really kind to me and supportive and prays for me. And she walked up and she said, hey, I heard you guys are, are kind of the first church to make the masks a, a, a thing on the weekends. And I said, yeah, you know, we just felt like that was the best thing, you know, for us to do. And she said, do you guys sing with it on? And I was like, yeah, we do. And she goes, man, how is that? And I said, well, <laughs> you hear yourself more, therefore realizing you're not as good of a singer as you thought you were. <laughs> I said, that, that part sucks. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty disheartening to, to be worshiping. And you're like, man, I don't sound near as good as those guys on stage. So uh, I said, besides that, it's not too bad. So um, anyways, thank you guys for being here. We have been working through the gospel of Matthew and um, we're kind of in a different trajectory. It, is, it has taken a turn if you haven't been with us. And I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail here in a second. But what we did last week, we were in the second half of chapter 16. And um, it's a very tough second half of a chapter to teach. It's dark. There are parts of the Bible that are, are remarkably dark. And chapter 16 had a lot of dark spots. It had some light spots as well in it. But what we saw in chapter 16 is there was this turning point this great shift, not just in the book of Matthew. If you're reading the entire Bible, there is a shift that happens in chapter 16 of Matthew in the second part of that chapter uh, that forever changes everything, right? Humanity, eternity, uh, uh, even the word of God takes a dramatic shift at that point. Everything changes in chapter 16 of Matthew. And the reason why is we start to learn a couple of things. Jesus is willingly walking towards his own death, right? He knows it and he's telling everyone about it. And because of that, he is also telling his followers, following him is not easy. It is brutal, right? It is picking up a cross. It is a sacrifice. It is hard work. That's not to say it's not rewarding because he assures us that there is a reward that is fantastic. And that was kind of the point. It was in the middle of the hard times, right? in the middle of the hardships and the persecutions and the criticisms and the hard, hard, you know, it's hard to keep your family together. It's hard to keep your marriage together. It's, it's hard to always do the right thing. In the middle of that temporary suffering, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that there is an eternal reward. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that Jesus has promised us not only heaven, but a, an, an existence forever with him in perfection. If we will just be faithful now, okay? We gotta remember that. Here's what we're going to talk about today. And if you've been at this church for any length of time, you've, you've heard me do similar things to this. What we're going to do today is I'm going to teach just half of chapter 17. And at the end, we'll take an inventory, right? We'll ask ourselves some questions. And all those questions, if we are honest, will kind of reveal this, the state of our personal faith. And I'm going to confess a lot to you guys today. Man, it has been, it's, it's been a hard season for faith. What I mean is, I, I would say most of us in this room, probably most of us watching on YouTube or Facebook, we have faith in God. We have faith that he's good, but it's hard to have faith that, that he's in control right now, if I'm being honest. I believe it deep down inside of me, but in the moment, sometimes that slips, doesn't it? It's hard when we don't know what steps to take and where to go, and we don't know, you know if our kids will be in school. We don't know what jobs are going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen with government. We, all these questions, all these kind of balls that we're trying to juggling to, to juggle are in the air, right? Kind of in limbo. 
not knowing how to catch things, not knowing how to, to do things the way we should. It's, it's tough to have faith right now. So in my own life, I've had to ask myself some hard questions. Corey, do you really trust God with everything? And it's tough. And so hopefully that's what we'll do a little bit today. And I, I hope it'll actually encourage you. I don't think it'll discourage you. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not into that as much as I was last week. I'd, I'd, I'd rather be happier this week if that's, if that's cool with you guys. Okay, all right. It'd be better for my soul, I think. So people think I like doing services like I did last week. I don't like it. I'm just trying to be obedient to what the Lord tells me to do. I don't, I don't think anyone likes saying hard things. Uh, you go home feeling like garbage. Man, Corey loves being a jerk. I don't love being a jerk. I hate it. I'll tell you a little thing about me. I, I feel like I handle conflict well most of the time in the moment, but I'm the kind of guy to where like I'll say what I have to say, but then I walk away and I want to throw up because I want you to like me, right? I don't want you to hate me. And so it's tough. But anyways, enough about me. Um, let me pray. You should have a notes handout. If you didn't get a notes handout at the two entrances, everything will be on the screen, okay? If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, uh, Tim Cook says is the, is the greatest app you can get. If you download the Experience Community app, he never said that. He has no idea who I am. If you uh, download the Experience Community app, everything is on there. Click on service time, sermon notes. And if you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament. We're in the 17th chapter. We'll get through it pretty quick today. It's a really, really neat uh, section of, of Matthew, okay? So let me pray and we'll jump into that, all right? Father, Lord, I just wanna tell you thank you, God. Um, I love the song selection today, Lord. All those songs were just focused on you, not us, God, but they were all just highlighting you and, and, and Lord, that's, that's the reason why we're here is you. Father, I pray, God, that, that we could become more dependent on you. I pray, Lord, that you would bless our church today not just our church, I pray, God, that you bless every church in our city that teaches the truth, believes in the truth. We pray, Father, for the non-believers of our community, Lord, that we could be the light to them. We pray for the great nonprofits that we work with, Lord. We pray for our local government, our state government, our federal government. Father, Lord, we pray that everything that we talk about today, that it honors you, Lord, that it, that it, it blesses us, Lord, as we hear your word, and God, that it also honors you and makes you proud, Father. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, starting in chapter 17. I'll read a little bit. Actually, this first part's kind of lengthy, and then we'll go back and break it down, okay? Matthew writes, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I'll set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down, face down, and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. 
As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, Jesus replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. There's a lot there, but we'll, we'll explain it, okay? So like I said, there are some major transitions happening in this section of the Bible, in these couple of chapters of Matthew. The major transition that I talked about last week and that I'm talking about right now is the major transition is Jesus is moving towards the cross. It's less about him ministering to big crowds. It is more about him ministering to his disciples and preparing to be crucified for people for, for their sin, okay? The other transition, besides Jesus going to the cross, the other thing that is happening and taking place is the church is being born. The followers of Jesus are being prepared to be the light of the world when Jesus ascends back into heaven in body. Now, the cross is the catalyst. The cross is not only the catalyst for us to be saved, right? The method by which our souls are saved. It is only through the cross that the church can be what the church is supposed to be. Because what happened is, is when Jesus was crucified, he ascended into heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit that fills the church, right? That when we believe in him, Ephesians 1.13, and call on his name, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can be the ambassadors of Jesus to the world around us. Without that Holy Spirit, we cannot be what God wants us to be to people that don't know who Jesus is, okay? So the end of chapter 16, we, I, I already said this, was very sobering, right? Almost a little uh, hard to take. Talk about carrying a cross and there's going to be suffering and hardships. But there's also encouragement at the end of chapter 16. Because Jesus assures us that there will be a reward, that God is faithful to reward those that are faithful to him. So six days, about a week, right, after Jesus kind of drops this bomb on his disciples, it's going to be tough, but there's going to be a reward. Jesus is going to take his inner three, his three closest friends, and he is going to give them a physical example, right? He's going to give them evidence of this reward, of the kingdom of God. And so Peter, James, and John were three of the disciples. They were kind of the inner circle of the inner circle. Jesus had his 12, but his real close friends were these three. Isn't it interesting within our own lives, and the older you get, you'll realize this, um, you'll really only have about three really close friends in your life. It's crazy. This kind of Jesus model where he had, you know, 12 people that he was close to, but he was really only close to about three people. We see this in our own lives. We see that small groups don't really work that well when they get much bigger than about 12 or 15 people. The, the intimacy and, and the relatability kind of drops down. And so we see that this Jesus model works. It works all the time. It's, it's pretty fascinating. So it says that Jesus was transfigured. This is not a word that we use a lot in our common day vernacular, right? It's similar to the word metamorphosis. It's a, it's a changing it literally, by definition, means to change into something more beautiful or to become more elevated. 
If you think of like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, right? That's a metamorphosis. It's a, it's a transfiguration, if you will. And so Jesus was going to take these three guys. He is going to temporarily transform, transfigure, metamorph, whatever, whatever you want to say there. And he's going to give them a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And he's going to give them a glimpse of what he is going to look like in his kingdom, his fullness. Now, there are times, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, there are times when the words of the Bible just fall flat when it comes to describing things, because there's only so much that we can describe with, with words on paper. So when you read the book of Revelation, you read about heaven, right, and the, the place that we're going to inherit for forever. When you read about that, it sounds really, really awesome, but when we actually get to see it in person, the words, are, they're, they're just not going to stack up to what we're going to see. That's what's going on here. Imagine Matthew is trying his best to describe what these men told him, right? Doing his best. And he said it was like looking at the sun. Jesus' face was like the sun. His clothes were as white as that light. So he's doing his best to describe Jesus. And imagine, you know, when you try to look at the sun, I'm trying, you know, sometimes these lights up here are so bright, I can't look into them, but imagine the sun. And you couldn't even really like focus in on it. It was so bright. It was so illuminated. That's what Jesus looked like in that moment. So the transfiguration probably took place on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, this is just kind of a, you know, if you're a weird geological person or something, right? Mount Hermon was a 9,200 foot tall mountain, right? In the area of Israel. And when they were up on this mountain and the transfiguration was taking place, we notice Matthew writes that Jesus was not alone in this. Moses was there, and Elijah was there. And as, as they were there, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John, this cloud kind of encompasses all of them. That cloud is called the Shekinah glory. That's a very, very biblical word. It's a Hebrew word. It's a word that we probably don't speak of very often. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament where Moses would go up on mountains and you would see this kind of glory, this presence of God. That's what Shekinah means. It means the, the presence of God. And you could see it. Um, if uh, Another time it's mentioned in the Old Testament is in the Ark of the Covenant. It said that the covenant that said that there would be this kind of green glow that would be between the seraphim, the angels of the Ark. If you're not familiar with that, if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you haven't, I feel like I've somehow failed as a, as a leader. But uh, if you've never seen Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant, you could see the Shekinah glory on, on, on that at the top. And so Moses and Elijah, why were these two guys there? For several reasons, but the most important was is they represented the law and the prophets, basically the Old Testament. If you don't know anything about Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of this Bible. He represented the law. Elijah, one of the most prominent prophets of the Old Testament, represented all of the Old Testament prophets, right? And so what Jesus was doing by bringing Moses and Elijah there with his disciples is he was showing his disciples that Jesus was greater than the law, greater than the prophets, and he was the connecting point between the old promise and the new promise. The three men, Peter, James, and John, represented the church, the New Testament. So right here in this group, we have everything, right? We have the entire story, the narrative of the Bible represented in this group of men, okay? Very interesting. 
So we love Peter, right? I kind of pick on Peter sometimes. We're going to laugh about it when we get up to heaven and hang out with each other. But Peter is like that guy that like, he doesn't know what to do a lot, but he wants to do something. And so in the middle of this cloud and this glory of God and Jesus is shining like the sun and Moses and Elijah appear and Peter's like, ah, you guys want me to like build some homes for you guys real quick? And I like build a tent. Do you guys want to hang out? And he just, Peter doesn't know what to do, but he just wants to do something. <laughs> and I love it. In the middle of Peter talking, it says God interrupts and says, this is Jesus. <laughs> Listen to him. Peter, be quiet a second. You know what's amazing, though, is when it says that the three disciples heard the voice of God, it said they fell down, face down, and were terrified. When you look up the Greek word terrified there, it means exactly what it says. They were scared, right? They wanted to like pee their pants, right? They heard the voice of God, and the Bible says the voice of God is like rolling thunder and like crashing waves. It kind of rattled them, right? Now, if you get into the Bible... Virtually every time a person has an encounter with God, sees a glimpse of God, or even has an encounter with an angel, you typically get the same response every single time. It says they were terrified, says they fell down like dead men, and it's not because God is just like gets a kick out of scaring people. He is God. He is something so much bigger and so much beyond us that when we come in contact with him in this state, right? It's scary. It's, it's huge. It's a big deal. The reason why I make this point is there are some people that will turn into certain pastors or read certain authors, and these people claim to just have casual encounters with God, these casual encounters with angels. I've heard many, many pastors, well, you know, there's just this angel that shows up to my house, hangs out with me, and I'm like, really? So all throughout the Bible, being in the presence of God or even being in the presence of an angel like that would scare people literally, like scare people so bad they would pass out. If you get into the book of Revelation, John encounters angels several times and every single time he like hits his face and they're like, John, get up, right? Because it was intimidating, it was intense. So I'm a little skeptical and let me tell you, you should be skeptical too of anyone who says, yeah, God talks to me all the time in an audible voice. I'm not saying God can't do that. But there is a certain amount of intensity that comes with having an encounter with God. There's a certain amount of intensity that comes if we say we've seen angels or the glory of God, okay? So we just need to be a little bit skeptical of that. So one of the reasons the transfiguration took place was to set the priorities of the disciples in the right order. So Moses and Elijah would have been two of the most famous people ever not just contributors to the word of God or good men. These would have been some of the most famous people in the history of the Jewish people. And so there were probably times when the disciples, Peter, James, and John, revered Moses and Elijah more than they even revered Jesus. They loved Jesus. They believed Jesus was the Savior. But they kind of geeked out more over Moses and Elijah than they did about the own son of God, their own son of God, right? So here's the thing. We have a tendency to do something similar today. What I mean is there's so many people that come to me that we geek out over certain kinds of authors of books or, or famous pastors or famous motivational speakers. And there's nothing wrong with reading books. Guys, if you ever come to my office, I have thousands of books on my shelves. I read a lot of different authors and a lot of different things. But my problem is so many professing Christians go to all these supplemental materials before they have ever gone to the source. 
And that's a problem, and I'll tell you why it's a problem, and you can call me a jerk for calling out this person, but I'm gonna do it because it's heresy. I remember years ago, all these Christian women were following Jen Hatmaker, right? She's just the end-all, be-all of Christianity. They read her books, they swallowed them, they, 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 they freaking gave them to everyone they knew, they did groups based on those books. And I'm not saying that all of her books are necessarily bad, but a couple years ago, Jen Hatmaker came out and embraced a theology that doesn't line up with this book. And it confused the heck out of a lot of women. Confused the heck out of a lot of people in the evangelical church. The problem is this. I'm not telling you to like burn all her books in our parking lot later today. But what I am saying is this. I mean, there's several laws you'd be breaking if you did that. But what I'm saying is this. Is if you don't read the Bible first, you don't know how to pick out what is good theology and what is bad theology. Because no one determines the theology of Christianity except for the Holy Word of God. And so we need to be so careful when we read all these other people. And they tell us, well, this is what God would want, and this is what the church should look like, and this is this, and this is that. Now listen, you can have your opinion, but if it doesn't correlate with this book, I don't care about your opinion. So we need to be mature enough to be able to spit out what is wrong and ingest what is correct, but without the Bible in our lives, we cannot do that. So whenever people are like, have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you read this book? Maybe I'll get to it, but first, I'm, I'm working through this again. I think more Christians just need to pick up the Word of God. Sorry, it's just me. So after God's voice told the disciples to listen to him, <clears throat> Jesus gets up, right? They're face down on the floor. Jesus gets up, touches them, and when they looked up, everything had gone back to normal. It was just Jesus standing there, right? And so as they were walking down the mountain, imagine how that felt, seeing what they had just seen. They're walking down the mountain, and Jesus says, hey, don't tell anyone about what you just saw. The reason why he said that is he knew that no one would believe them. So he said, wait until after I've been resurrected from the grave, and then people will believe what you saw, right? They'll believe the story. So he said, just wait. Don't tell them yet. They're not going to understand. So they're still trying to figure something out, right? And they just saw Elijah. And so as they're talking, they bring up the book of Malachi. He was the last prophet before Jesus was born. So if you go back, the last book of the Bible before the book of Matthew was the book of Malachi. So some 400 years before Jesus came along, right? Malachi in chapter three said that Elijah would come back and pave the way for Jesus. They thought that that transfiguration is what, what, Mal what Malachi was talking about, and that's not what Malachi was talking about. Malachi was saying a metaphor. There's going to be someone like Elijah, and that person was John the Baptist. That's what he was referring to. And so Jesus cleared that expectation or that, that misinterpretation up. The problem is this, though. Because the people of God, the professing people of God, had inaccurate expectations of God, this is so important, they missed what God was doing right in front of them. Because the people had not read the word, because the people had not prayed and had a relationship with God, they missed the fact that not only God's prophet, John the Baptist, but God himself, Jesus Christ, they had missed that right in front of their faces because they were not expecting biblical expectations. So let's talk about inaccurate expectations. Let me, let me confess something to you guys. I, I said a little bit at the beginning of the service. When all this COVID stuff started hitting, right? When the unemployment rate tripled in a month, when stuff started going crazy, when we knew that we couldn't have a church inside the building because you couldn't have more than 10 people at a time inside a place, 
man, my priorities started to get out of whack. Instead of just, you know, hitting my face all the time and saying, God, you're in control. I know everything's going to be okay, regardless of how it shakes down. I started thinking about, man, am I going to be able to pay my staff? Man, am I going to be able to, to stay in the neighborhood that I'm at? Man, am I going to be able to, to, to keep being a, a vocational pastor? Am I going to have to get another job? What? And I started thinking of all these things. And what happens is, is when pressure and stress starts to creep into our life, sometimes our priorities can get out of whack and we can lose sight of how God is working around us. And we do that because we lose sight of what God promises us. Do you know God never promises us that we're going to have a good job? God never promises us that we're going to have excess. God never promises us that things are going to be easy. So we need to realign ourselves with the expectations that the Bible gives us. And the only way to do that is to read the Bible. The only way to know what God expects out of us and what God promises us in this life, I don't know if you guys know this, God doesn't promise us longevity. The Bible says this life is a vapor. You could be dead tomorrow. The Bible doesn't promise you that you're going to live for a long time. The Bible doesn't promise you that you're always going to be healthy. The Bible doesn't promise you that you're going to be wealthy either. These are lies. These are inaccurate expectations. And the only way to correct that is by the word of God. We also have to pray. Man, prayer is so important. Not only do we need to pray, we need to pray with intentionality. We need to say, Lord, fill us up with your Holy Spirit. I need more of your Holy Spirit. But when we do that, we need to make sure we declutter and get all this other sin and garbage out of our hearts so the Holy Spirit can fill us. And we need to pray, we need to pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for the gift of wisdom. Man, we need that big time right now. We need the gift of discernment to let me know what is right and what is wrong. And we have to constantly be dependent on him. Okay, That's how we correct these inaccurate expectations that we have of God. All right, next part. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus replied, this is to his disciples, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly, I tell you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. There's a lot of misconceptions in that part that I just read, and hopefully we'll clear them up. So Jesus has his three closest disciples up on the mountain. And so what's happening with the other nine disciples while that's going on? So after the transfiguration, right, they're walking down. They reach the crowds. They found out that the other nine were trying to do the work of Jesus, but not doing a very good job. A man runs up to Jesus and says, Lord, my son is having seizures. He is falling into fires. He is falling into bodies of water. 
I prayed, or I, I'm sorry, I asked for your disciples to pray and have him healed, but it didn't work. I need your help. Now, let me clear up. These were not seizures like epilepsy. This is not a seizure like we would think of a seizure. What was happening is this boy was being demonically oppressed and possessed, and because of that, he was trying to kill himself, throw himself into fires, throw himself into bodies of water. He was probably cutting himself. We see that multiple times in the Bibles with people who are demonically possessed. They are hurting themselves, trying to damage their bodies. Now listen, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say this with a lot of care and a lot of sincerity. Self-harm comes from a very evil place. If you self-harm, I'm not saying you are evil, but I'm saying that there is evil coming against you, coming from a guy who used to self-harm and tried to take his own life three times, okay? The devil comes to steal, kill, destroy. The devil wants nothing else for you to hurt yourself, nothing more than he wants you to hurt yourself and possibly take your own life, okay? That comes from a very evil source. Listen, that means when those thoughts creep into our head of hurting ourselves, those thoughts creep into our head of killing ourselves. We need to speak the, the, the name of Jesus Christ. We need to pray against those thoughts. We need to hold those things captive. We need to confess those feelings and thoughts to people that we trust so they can pray with us. That is a very big spiritual issue, and we need to take it seriously, okay? That kind of self-harm, the suicidal thoughts, that comes because evil is coming against you. It's not a good thing. So as the power of God is on display up on the mountain, right, the transfiguration, down below the lack, of the lack of faith from the disciples prohibits them from exercising the power of God. So what does Jesus say to his nine disciples that are left? Man, he, he yells at them, calls them unbelieving, calls them perverse. He goes, how much longer do I have to hang out with you guys? He gets mad at them, probably raises his voice at them connecting them with the non-believing Jews that he has been fighting with for several years with these guys. So a very frustrated Jesus, right? He's frustrated his followers, turns to this demonically possessed boy and says, leave to the spirit, right? Get out. He rebukes the demon. The demon leaves. This sheds a lot of new light, this whole scenario, on the state of the faith, the issue of faith with Christians, and Jesus turns back to his guys and he says, you didn't do it because you lacked faith. You didn't have faith. Now we have to be careful with this topic of faith. All right? We have to be very, very careful with this. Many people take this passage from Matthew and they say, well, if we pray for something and it doesn't happen, it's because that person didn't have faith or because I didn't have faith. And that is not always the case. Faith is a vessel for God to work through us, but our faith is not what does the miraculous. It is always God's power, not ours. So we need to be careful, right? We need to be careful to say, well, I have so much faith. I can do this, right? Because I have this faith. Jesus said, nothing's impossible for me, and that is taking way out of context. Faith is trusting that God is in control. Faith is believing that whatever happens when I lay my hands on someone and pray for them, whatever happens, I trust that God knows what's best and he's gonna do what's best for everyone involved. We have to pray for God's will to be done, right? So we have to be very careful with this whole faith thing. We also have to keep this particular miracle in context. 
The Bible says that whatever we pray for that is in alignment with God's will will come to pass. It will happen. Now, this miracle is different than praying for someone that that has some kind of cancer or physical ailment. It is always God's will for people to be saved. We know that from 2 Peter. We know that straight from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 6. It is never God's will that anyone go to hell. God does not want people to go to hell. So whenever we pray for someone that is demonically possessed, oppressed, or lost, it is always God's will to deliver that person. Therefore, when we pray in faith that demons be cast out or spirits be be cast out or that people be saved, those things will happen because it aligns with the will of God. When we pray for people to be physically healed, there are times when God wants that to happen and there are times when God doesn't want it to happen. Listen, I have seen so many people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ because they got sick and suffered. And I would rather people die at a young age from cancer and be saved than live to be 120 and go to hell. And Jesus knows better than we do. Even Jesus, I'm kind of spoiling the end, towards the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus gets on his knees in the garden before his crucifixion. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this suffering pass. It was not God's will. Jesus suffered and died. So the ultimate level of faith is to pray, God, whatever your will is, let it be done. Whatever it is, and I will still love you, regardless if this person remains sick, regardless of what happens. Lord, I pray for you to heal them, but if it's your will, let it be done. Let me tell you a story, and I don't don't think the families would mind me sharing this with you. About six years ago, I think it was about six years ago, We had two families at this church that their children got uh, a very, very um, lethal forms of cancer. Uh, Their children, one, I think the little girl was about one or two years old. The boy was 12. Both got cancer at the same time. Our church prayed. We fasted. We laid hands on them. We walked with the family. Can't tell you how many times I went to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital and did all these things. And that the outcome of that One of the kids, the younger one, was miraculously healed, has never had cancer show up again. And then the little boy died. He died. And we actually had some people in this church, man, a couple, not many, but just a couple of of clowns, right, that said it was because our church didn't have enough faith that that boy died. Let me tell you, that is destructive, bad, anti-biblical theology. That is bad, bad stuff. Don't listen to that garbage. It's not true. You go up and walk up to a parent that just lost their 12-year-old who would pray and fast and do everything they could, had all the faith in the world, and tell them that it was because of their lack of faith that their child died, right? What a, what a monstrous, terrible thing to say to somebody. It's bad theology. But that family, both those families still come to church here. And that family that lost their little boy, they've been faithful here. And, 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 and their faith is, is monumental, right? Because they trust that God's will was done, even though that was a very hard will to accept. So the faith of a mustard seed. Jesus says you could have cast this demon out if you just had the faith of a mustard seed. What we've established is true faith is the admittance that we are powerless. It is all him. It is all him. And when Jesus was speaking about the faith of a mustard seed, he was referring to to us letting go. You have to let go of yourself. Realize, Realize just how small you are. Realize just how powerless you are. And when we realize we are weak, we acknowledge that God is strong, that he can do amazing things. But to realize that humanity is weak and that God is strong takes humility. 
It's something our culture lacks greatly right now. I lack it at times. But we've got to be humble. Not only humble, we, we hate this word, we also have to be dependent. We have to be dependent on him. We have to know, brothers, sisters, we have to know that every single day we are reliant on God to give us what we need. That everything we have is because God is gracious and God is good. It is all because of him. And we have not earned anything. It is all because God loves us and wants to give it to us. So through Jesus Christ, listen, we have the ability to move the mountains that he wants moved. When he says nothing is impossible for you, he means nothing is impossible within my will for you to do. If you pray for it within my will, within this channel, nothing is impossible for you. Even mountains can move, right? So what happens though is this. We, we get this confused. We, we, we think mountains are, I don't drive a Ferrari. So we come up with this name it, claim it bullcrap, Right? Well, I'm just going to name it and claim it. I'm going to name it and claim that house. I'm going to name it and claim that car. I'm going to name it and claim this and this salary and all this stuff. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Those aren't the mountains he wants moved for you. He wants bigger mountains moved. He wants things like depression moved out of your life. He wants things like insecurity moved out of your life. He wants things like the hurts and scars of past mistakes and, and things that people have done to you and abused for you. Those are, he's talking about bigger mountains than Ferraris and nice houses. He's talking about the monumental mountains, right? The ones that cause people to want to end their lives and end their marriages and, and run from their responsibilities. Those are the things that God wants to move out of your life. So moving mountains is a metaphor. To my knowledge, no Christian, right? And there's been a lot of Christians of strong faith have walked up and been like, Everest, go over there, right? That has never happened. So it's a metaphor. And Jesus is talking about the mountains within your personal life. And so you say, well, Corey, what the heck? I don't even know. I don't understand. Can mountains really move? There are people in this room that if I were to bring them on the stage and say, Tell us about mountains God has moved in your life. They would tell you how God had delivered them from sexual addiction, from, from porn addiction. They would tell you about how God had delivered them from substance abuse, how God had fixed their marriage that so much was shattered, but by the power of God, God moved that mountain, fixed their marriage, how God had brought back wayward children that had run far from the gospel. There are people in this room that could tell you stories that would make the hair on your arms stand up, mountains that have been moved. Does God move mountains? Absolutely, God moves mountains. If we will recognize how small we are and how powerful he is, there are mountains he wants to shift out of your way. So let's take an inventory, right? The first question is this. Do we expect out of God what God tells us we should expect? So if you come into church thinking, and I'm not trying to just like be a jerk and pick on these people, but if you come into church thinking that Christianity is easy, if you come into church thinking that if I become a Christian, I'm going to be healthy and wealthy, influential, all these things, this book never promises those things. It doesn't promise. Uh, I love it when these, these, these name it, claim it, prosperity people say, you're going to be wealthy, right? Jesus wants you to be wealthy. Jesus said to his disciples in the book of Luke, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't even have a place to sleep tonight. <laughs> How do you get the prosperity gospel out of that? 
How do you get the prosperity gospel out of the fact? How do you tell people that there is no suffering when Jesus said, in this life there will be suffering? You know how you come to the conclusion that there's no suffering? You don't read your Bible. Are our expectations of God biblical expectations? Does God have a good life for you? Yes, but God's definition of good may be different than the American definition of good. God has a good life for you. Prosperity means something different to God than it means for us in America, okay? Are our expectations of God biblical expectations? Let me ask you this. When we have questions of faith, where do we go to get the answers? Do you Google it? Right? Reading a book right now, and the main topic of the book is screens disciple people more than the Bible disciples people. Do you Google it or do you actually go to the Word of God? Where do we find the source? Or, or, or what source are we using to find answers? Are we following those things? Do we go to the Word of God looking to follow it regardless of how we feel? Right? We have let feelings kind of trump facts and biblical facts. What source are we going to to find the answers? Did we come into this place for a quick fix? Or did we come in here for a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? I said this a couple of weeks ago. If, if we come into this place for any other reason but to know Jesus, it's the wrong reason. If you're a man in here and you're here just so your wife won't leave you because she gave you an ultimatum, church, or, or we divorce, you're here for the wrong reasons. Let me tell you why. Because you will fool people just long enough to where you'll slip right back into those old patterns. You will start going right. Because if there isn't a heart change, eventually the actions are going to go right back to what they were. Why are we here? Are we here for a quick fix? Are we here because we're broke right now? Are we here because we just need to be bailed out? Are we here to genuinely get to know our creator? Are we praying? There is always a correlation in my life of stress and anger and frustration and fear and a lack of prayer. Those things always correlate. But when I find myself in a healthy prayer life, I find that I'm more confident. I find that I have peace. I find that I have joy. I find that I have contentment, the fruit of the Spirit, because I'm connected to the Holy Spirit. Are we praying? Are you carving that time out in your day to speak to the Lord? Are we asking the Lord to fill us with his Holy Spirit? Give us your Holy Spirit. Guide us, give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us knowledge. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the comforter, the counselor. Are we asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us? Are we leaning on that? Do we have faith that God is in control? We say we do. Listen, this is me. I remember in 2016, guys, election years are hard for churches. They're very hard. And I remember in 2016, I constantly said, do you believe God is in control? Regardless of who is, who is elected in November, do you believe that God is in control? Do you guys believe that? Honestly, I'm asking you to be honest with yourself. Regardless of who gets elected, right? When they swear Kanye in, are you still going to sit back and say, <laughs> hey, would you be that shocked in 2020, right? Anyways. Do we have faith that God is in control? Do we have faith that regardless of who is in the White House, Jesus still sits on the throne? Do we believe that? Do we really believe it? Do we believe regardless of what happens with economies, regardless of what happens globally, do we still believe that Jesus is in control? We need to step back and really ask ourselves that question. 
And if we believe that, why are we so afraid? Why are we so angry? Why are we so divisive? Do we pray for God's will to be done in our life regardless of what that will is? Think about that for a second. That's a scary prayer, guys, if we're just being honest. Oftentimes we go, God, I need this, I need this, I want this. I need help with that, I want this job, I want this whatever, I need this to happen. Maybe we should approach the Lord saying, God, what is your will for my life right now? What's your will for my family? What's your will for this relationship? What's your will for me? God, I just want to be in your will. Father, whatever your will is, let that be done in my life. Show me your will. Reveal it to me. But in order to ask God to do his will, we have to be humble. Are we humble people? Are we obedient people? Are we dependent on Jesus Every single day, the Lord's prayer says, give us today our daily bread. That means literally, I, I depend on Jesus today to give me the food I need. Literally. I depend on Jesus today to give me the spiritual sustenance I need. The Holy Spirit, the bread of life, right? The word of God. That means that we have to have a daily dependency on Jesus every single day. And here's the last question I want to ask you. And no one can answer this except for you. Not what are the mountains that you want to move in your life. Because let me tell you something. There may be mountains in your life that God has strategically put there because he doesn't want you to see what's on the other side. There may be doors that have been shut in your life and you're like, God, why is that mountain there? And God's saying, because you don't want to know what's on the other side. It's not good for you. There are times that God shuts doors because he knows, right? He knows that the, there's a reason why all of us in this room are not millionaires. It wouldn't be good for all of us to be millionaires. Some of you are like, you're right. Now, do I want more money? Of course, I think all of us would, would like to have more money. But man, there are some of us that if you gave us a million dollars, it would go up our nose, right? We would do awful, evil things. I've known people who've done it, who've blown hundreds of thousands of dollars in a couple of weeks. They've come into money and it, they burned right through it. So we often pray, God, make me prosperous. And God's like, prosperity wouldn't be good for you. It'd be unhealthy for you. So maybe we should get on our knees and we should say, God, reveal to me the mountains that you want to move out of my way so I can have a better relationship with you, so I can have a better marriage, so I can raise my children better, so I can be kinder to those that are different from me. God, what mountains do you want to move? And I'm talking about big mountains. Guys, there may be some insecurity in your life right now that God says, I want to, tell, I want to take that insecurity mountain from you, and I want to give you security in me. There may be hatred because someone has abused you. God doesn't want that mountain in front of you. God wants to remove that mountain of hurt and shame and scars and regret. There may be mountains of addiction. There may be mountains of sexual struggles. There may be all kinds of mountains. And God says, if you'll just let me, if you'll just have a little bit of faith, if you will relinquish control, if you will acknowledge that you are as small as a mustard seed and I am strong, nothing will be impossible. That addiction can be gone, right? That struggle can be gone. Those feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation can be gone. Nothing is impossible if it is in the will of God. So God says, show me your mountains. Show me the mountains, right? And if you will just relinquish control, I will move those mountains out of your way. What are the mountains in your life that God wants 
gone? And have you given those things over to him? Have you trusted him to move those things out of the way? God wants you. It says in Jeremiah that he has good plans for you. He wants what's best for you. He is a perfect, loving father. He wants you to have good relationships. He wants you to have contentment and joy. I'm talking about the big things. People think of Ferrari as contentment. That's not contentment. It is bigger things than that. It is not having all those things, but still having peace. That's the real win. It's to not have all the material possessions and still feel valuable. Those are the big wins. It's to not have the affirmation of man, but to have the affirmation of God. Those are the big things. Those are the things really worth fighting for in this life. What mountains does God want to move for you? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and you have uh, maybe some questions, maybe you're not a believer yet, or, or maybe you're new in your faith and you just, you just don't know where to go next and what to do, Pastor Muhammad is right over here on my right, your left. He's at the corner of the stage. God has moved some mountains in that man's life. You should ask him about that sometime. If you have any questions, come up here and ask Muhammad. If you are watching online, email us at, at uh, info at experiencecc.com. We'll get back to you, okay? There's also men and women on the front who would love to pray with you for anything you may need, anything. Guys, the Bible says to confess your faults. Maybe you need to confess some of your mountains. And maybe a brother or sister up here can pray with you and pray that God starts to move those mountains out of your way, okay? The last thing is, is you should have communion in your hands. Everyone who asks Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins is welcome to take the body and blood of Jesus let me tell you what that represents. <laughs> that represents a God that loved us so much that he would send his only son that it is not his will that any go to hell. It's not his will that any perish. That's what the Bible says several times. That if we would just believe in him, we will not die but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ moved the mountain of sin and death and hell when he died on the cross for us and resurrected. He has is, he is forgiven us. He has moved the mountains of condemnation and guilt and shame. He has moved the biggest mountains. But today you can pray and ask, God, what other mountains in my life do you need to move for me? Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love this church. God, I love this church. Father, thank you for the men and women in this room. Thank you for people watching online today. Lord, keep your hand on us, God. Lord, whatever mountain may be in our way, maybe we haven't even recognized that these things are mountains, but God so exposed those to us. Maybe we've been wondering why we've been stuck, and maybe that's because we've been hitting the side of a mountain. Lord Jesus, whatever mountains you want moved in our lives, God, show us those things and give us the courage to have the faith in you so you can get them out of our way. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, God. We give all things over to you, Lord. We acknowledge that we are weak and you are strong. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.